Write the world-changing book that will help grow your personal brand and your business as it makes the world a better place. Welcome to the Author's Corner, hosted by Robin Colucci. Every episode, we bring you some of the most successful authors, as well as other industry experts, to share some inspiration, motivation, tactical strategy, and fun. We'll also talk about the challenges and trends in the publishing industry. Don't get stuck in the idea phase. Join the Author's Corner today. Start writing the book you've dreamed about. Hello and welcome to the Author's Corner. I am your host, Robin Colucci, and today my guest is Charles Vogel. Charles is an advisor, speaker, and the author of three books, including Storytelling for Leaders, Building Brand Communities, and the award-winning international bestseller, The Art of Community. He is a strategy advisor to Google's global health and performance programs and a founding member of the Google Vitality Lab, which works to innovate healing in our era. His work is used to advise and develop leadership programs worldwide within organizations, including Google, Airbnb, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitch, Amazon, ServiceNow, Meetup.com, Wayfair, and the U.S. Army. He also has presented at venues including Harvard, Yale, and Stanford Universities, the Academy of Management, and the San Francisco Mayor's Office. He holds a Master's in Divinity from Yale, where he studied religion, ethics, and business as a Jesse Ball DuPont Foundation Scholar. Now, in my conversation with Charles today, he's going to share with us about creating community and what that means and how it is different from building an audience. And he's going to present to us some new ways of thinking about your relationship with your readers that you might not have considered. And be sure to stick around for the whole episode as towards the end, Charles turns the tables and begins to interview me. And we go deep into some of these ideas and really start to examine and explore and unpack them. So I encourage you to sit back and enjoy. Welcome to the Author's Corner, Charles. Well, I'm delighted to be invited. It's such a pleasure to have you. And I've checked out your book, The Art of Community, as well as the Building Branding Communities. And I think that this is such an important conversation for both existing authors and aspiring authors. And I just want to dive right in because one of the things I see a lot with people in either camp, right? They're either gearing up to try to get a book deal or they've got a book deal and they're about ready to launch or they've already launched. And I see a pattern among authors where they actually shy away from community. They shy away from growing a community or having a social platform, for example, and then when the book comes out, they think, oh my gosh, I need an online community. I need to start building a community. And actually, I was even talking with the, one of the founders of Digital Natives who said this is a big problem when authors come to them like three months before the book is launching saying, oh, I have to build my social community so I can sell the book to them. And I have a strong sense that you would have something to say mm. <laughs> about approaching the idea of community building. How should we be looking at community building 
because that way is already proven to be very ineffective, right? Like to start pushing a community and then like three weeks in start saying, buy my book, buy my book. Wow, you've just touched on so many things. My head's spinning. On, like, I know, I know. It's, it's, and I've been saving this up. so I- <laughs> <laughs> Just so I'll be overwhelmed. Just here's the tidal wave of my thinking. Let me just hear your initial commentary and we can start to refine and, and dig down more. But I'd like to hear your initial thoughts on when I present you with something like that. Okay, so we need to start at the beginning so I can respond with integrity. In my work, I define a community as a group of people who share mutual concern for one another. And be crystal clear, that's in contrast to a group. And a group of people could be people who like a subject together, people who go to the beach together, people who went to school together. And those are great. And we should be members of lots of groups. That's just not the work that I'm talking about. So even further clarify, that's also not an audience. Audiences are great. And if an author has something important to say that's going to change the word, by God, please go build the biggest audience you can. That's not the work that I'm talking about. And typically we can see the difference because in an audience, we see largely one-way communication. We call that broadcasting. So somebody, and that could be a brand, not just a single person, has something to say and other people get it. They get emails, they listen to a podcast, they listen to someone on stage, great. That's not a community. It might be a place we would start to build community but it's not. And the reason that's important to know is to get community from an audience or a group, we have to make very different investments that inevitably take time, such that those people in an audience will then become be connected. We call it knitting together relationships that become a community. So with that said, I'm not confident that every author needs to build a community. Now, that's a little bit unfair, Robin. I'm going to take that back now that I put that because I'm going to say, I hope everybody has a community and authors are people. So I hope they have a community. (laughs) I'm not convinced that every author needs to go build a community for being an author. Yeah. If you have a fantastic family community and faith community and philanthropic community and political activist community and artist community, and then you write a book, I'm not convinced you should be spending two to 10 hours a week building another community for your book work. With that said, most of us, Robin, I think you and I are the same at this. Our intellectual work that we're sharing the work with the world forms out of the relationships we have with the community we're already in. And if the community we're already in doesn't yet value what we have to say, certainly enough to go buy the book and talk about it, then something else is wrong, which is to say as soon as we put something in the world, hopefully, in fact, there is a community that wants to hear it. But the community isn't there to buy our stuff. Uh, Robin, you're a busy person. You're well-connected. Please answer this question to me. How many communities do you want to join in the next year? that are founded to get your money? None. Right, exactly. And you're firm on that? You're not kind of wiggly that maybe you would join 10 if, okay. So that's exactly what's happening when someone, be that an author or anybody else, wakes up and says, you know what I need to do? I need to create a community to get somebody's money. Now, my guess, Robin, is you would join a lot of communities. They said, Robin, we've created space, events, informational opportunities where you're going to meet people who are growing in the way you want to grow. And some of them have achieved things you want to achieve that you haven't yet. And by the way, guess what? They're not all more advanced than you. Some of them are less advanced than you. And if you join, it would be really important to us that you take time to help those people who are not as wise as you become wiser. Would you like to spend more time with us? Oh, by the way, 
Uh, there'll be some books to buy because we have some shared reading. Uh, there'll be some tickets to buy because we're going to create events and they're not free. With that said, Robin, we'd love for you to join us. Would you consider that invitation? Yes. And yes I, is the yeah, answer, right? I have said yes to many of these kinds to of many, things. And that's, in fact, how we met, right? We both spent uh, <laughs> money to go to an event that's been put together so that you and I could meet. And here we are growing together. Like you shared yeah. things with me about your field that I did not know. And I'm happy to share what I have to share here. So the reason that's an important distinction to make, Robin, is I think that a lot of people are really confused about what I've just talked about in the last you know, six minutes. And they waste untold months or years of their lives trying to build a community that the likes of you and me and everybody we know never want to join and then wonder why that doesn't work or it's a struggle. And I would like to have you know, as many people off from that as we can. So is that a good opening remark Absolutely. about that question? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because I do think that there's a misconception, right, that having a big social like having a lot of likes on your Facebook or having a big social audience translates to people going out and buying your book. The evidence actually points away from that. And so, you know, one thing I love about what you're saying is that there's a deeper layer that really is what we should be pursuing in terms of creating this idea of how did you put it? Mutual Relationships of mutual concern. Concern. Yes. Mutual concern. And Robin, I'll give you some hints here about how we can identify communities right away. Do members know each other's names? If they don't, it's probably not a community. There are some exceptions I can think of, but probably not. So if people are reading your newsletter and they don't know each other's names, it's probably not a community. Yeah. It's an audience. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with that. And God bless you. Go build a big one. And you talk about, you talk about communities both in person and also online. Can you share with us a little bit about what you think the key distinctions are, or perhaps even more importantly, the key similarities? <laughs> Whatever you think is more important. I mean, this is a very, very deep subject. So let's just talk about three things, right, to get started. The first one is the research is overwhelmingly clear. Connections that happen in person happen far, far faster and go far, far deeper than they do online, period. And the reason that's important to know is we live in an era where we're coming off of the COVID pandemic. We've all spent time online and some people have this mistaken notion that we can all move online all the time and it's going to be great. Uh, Robin, we are literally living in what research indicates the loneliest era ever. So when people say, oh, gee, I have this great solution. We'll do more of this thing that made us more disconnected. I'm just don't, my head isn't big enough for the eye roll, Robin. <laughs> so first of all, we need to understand that there are similarities With that said, they're never going to be the same. We know that it takes people less time to become close in person, and we know that it's more fulfilling. Yeah, absolutely. The second thing we'll say about, we'll touch on the part about time. So we know it takes more time to connect online. Because of that, if we're making investment to bring people together, say authors, into an honest community online, we have to time budget for it. Now, Robin, if I invited you to my home for noodles this Friday night, and I said, hey, could you come by six o'clock? And by the way, we're inviting some other people over. They are world-traveled and they have interesting things to say. Please don't plan to leave before 10. By the way, we'll make sure that there's wine and, and something crispy to eat. Cool. You would think nothing of it. Nothing <laughs> of it. In fact, you look forward to it. Might arrive early. Might consider staying if you sit next to someone particularly handsome and charming. Absolutely. If I say, Robin, this Friday night, will you get on a Zoom call with me from 6 o'clock to 8.30? You can't even believe I would even ask. Notice why. Yeah. And it's because one is far more satisfying. So here's the great irony. We have to schedule more time online to create those connections. And we want to get, schedule 
less time. Totally. Can it be done? Sure. And there are lots of examples of that. We have to know as community leaders what we're up against. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then the third thing I'll share about that is I see a lot of mistakes happen online regarding what we call intimate experiences or campfire experiences. Robin, when you and I go to a conference or a party or celebration of some sort, what really happens is we don't stand among 20 people and just talk out loud, hoping 19 other people hear us. Right. We never do that. <laughs> we find groups of largely three, maybe, maybe six, but usually not. Yeah. And if it's a bigger group than that, for example, you and I go to a three-hour wedding and they put us at a table for 10, it's really uncomfortable. And we're just trying to talk to three people next to us. And it's kind of weird because there's 10 of us there. And after three hours, we still don't feel that connected to those people. Or what we do is we end up pairing off. Exactly right. Or doing mini triplets at the table of 10. Exactly right. So we call that for the purposes of teaching in my work, a campfire experience. And the reason I, we use that is simply because uh, most people, if not everybody, has had the experience of sitting around a campfire, standing up some hours later, noticing that you feel more connected to those people, and you talk about things that are important to you and touched you. We have found that community leaders, people who fancy themselves community leaders, totally ignore that principle that we find at a campfire, which is small enough groups that feel intimate, where you can, if you so choose, have a vulnerable conversation. So when we have people online, we have to then go out of our way to segment them to create some kind of structure where they can find an intimate campfire experience. Whereas you invite me to a wedding of 500 people, I'm going to do it within 15 minutes. Right. So those are three examples that are different between an online and even that alone is just so loaded because I'm just my my now my brain is is zooming around because you know when I just think of like something I noticed is how you know since COVID like I've always worked on Zoom right, with my clients and everything. But when my social life also moved to Zoom, I got so much fatigue, Mm -hmm. like literally like Zoom fatigue. Mm -hmm. Like the last thing I want to do at eight o'clock at night is to have another Zoom call. And it's interesting because it's face to face, right? So, I mean, it should feel closer, I think, than it does. I mean, (laughs) what do you think? Well, there's some interesting thinking about that. My understanding is I haven't seen any research that explains how Zoom fatigue happens, what have you. And then there are events that we attend online and we don't get tired. I don't even know if it's important that we understand why it's happening. We just need to understand at this juncture that it happens so that we don't lean too heavily on video communication. And I know for me at this point, after a year and a half of a pandemic time, I often want to put a headset and walk around my neighborhood. I don't want to sit in this chair looking at the camera. (laughs) And that's important that we recognize that so that we can give people we're connecting with freedom to do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it counts. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And so that was another interesting point that you brought up about how this is the loneliest time for so many is say a little bit more about that. Well, we've seen a trend of loneliness steadily increasing, unfortunately, since the 1970s till now. It may have been increasing since before then, but that's what the research shows. Bowling for Columbine is uh, by Putnam is the most famous book that documented from the 70s to 90s how we were on the slide. And we know it's become much, much worse. In fact, the latest research coming out of Pew indicates we're more lonely than ever. I just saw research that shows that 15% of men don't have a close friend. 
And Robin, you and I together have sat in a room with more than 10 men in it. So when you're out in the grocery store, when you're making invitations to people to join you, there's a lot of profoundly lonely people. And usually I'm speaking or was before COVID in large rooms of people. And I would say that you and everyone you know is living in the loneliest era maybe in history. And I see heads nod because even people who don't study this, they understand that intuitively, even if they don't understand literally, if they don't understand it specifically. And I think this is important when we talk about building community, because at the end of the day, Robin, communities largely begin with an invitation. Somebody needs to invite somebody else to spend time together, hopefully in the physical room, maybe digitally, but someone's got to make the invitation. And I have found where people are not yet connecting or not yet sending out invitations. There's a lot of fear about that. And what I hope that we all understand is we are surrounded by people who are desperately waiting for invitations to connect. And we're all standing around together, desperately waiting for this together. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, you know, we're a lonely time. So when we reach out to people to connect, we're largely on balance reaching out to people who don't have the skills to make the connections they want. So when it turns out they're not very good at it, and it turns out maybe you're not good at it, Robin, I'm just making that up. We need to give forgiveness to ourselves if that's the context. And just assume that's okay, this is clunky because it's really, really bad out there. And one of my colleagues, Z-Ban, he named the problem going on in this era. Says one of the ways we can look at it is we have a failure to build up leaders who are connecting us. If we can train more people, encourage more people, inspire more people to literally go out and invite more people to connect, create the spaces where we connect, which can be around pizza. It can involve s'mores. It can involve ramen noodles. Those totally count. <laughs> When we have more people who do that, we're going to be more connected and we can be those people and we can just know that we're inviting people who are no good at this and that's okay. You know, it just, it's amazing to think it seems like oxymoron in a way that we live in the age of connectedness, right? I mean, the internet supposedly has connected the world, right? Where you can reach people in any, all corners of the planet. You know, it's counterintuitive. In the loneliest era at the same time. It's counterintuitive, Robin. Because I think that there, so there's a total misunderstanding of what connection means. And in fact, when people say, oh, we have a community, that's, we have 6,000 people connected in our community. At this point in my life and work, I know that they're largely totally full of it. Right. What they're usually doing is conflating audience with a community. And God bless you if you have 6,000 person audience, but that's not a community. And so let's not pretend you have that. It's counterintuitive because typically social media is really good at connecting us with lots of people who don't care anything about us. And it's really lousy about connecting us with people who care a great deal about it. There are obviously exceptions. And given the end we're talking about in the internet, obviously those exceptions are meaningful. But when we're talking about our entire lives or everybody we know or our generation, it's a terrible, terrible tool. And the research is also pretty clear. There's a correlation between time spent in social media and being unhappy. Mm -hmm. So when you know that, then you get to reprioritize how you're spending your time. Devious sense how we handle that in our lives, Robin. Up until very recently with the COVID, my wife and I hosted two dinner parties a week in our home. Oh, wow. And they're not fancy because we do two a week in our home. <laughs> uh, but there's a meal we're going to eat and we eat every day, Robin. So that's not such a big deal. <laughs> and there are people who are not us there. Right. <laughs> and what really happens is we have a conversation that's fun. That's what happens. And since we've been doing this for many, many years now, we now have friends who know where stuff is in our house. And they know kind of the order of affairs. And they are now hosting with us because their hands get dirty. And so we have built community around that. Well, over the course of a year, you know, if we're hosting, let's just say eight 
dinners in our home a month. Those are all hours we're logging building friendships. And you can imagine how after one year and then after five years and after 10 years, how that is a life-changing experience, not only for us, but for the other people who have spent those hours in community with us. As I'm listening to you, I'm remembering that, you know, there's those, I think if you're fortunate enough to go to college and get to live on campus, it's like, I can't think of another time well, actually I can because I also lived on a yoga ashram a couple of times. But other than that, I can't I can't think of another time where it was just so easy to connect, right? Because you live with these people, you go to class with these people, you party with them. And really it was five years ago now I went to my 30-year college reunion. And it was interesting that I noticed that everyone that I hung out with was by and large, the people on my floor of my dorm, my freshman, and those are the ones who showed up. And, and I think that there was something about, right, it was our first year away from home, and we just kind of gelled together. But when I think about like in adult life after college, it seems like you really do have to be like, you can't just, those things don't just happen so much. You have to create them like you're saying. Well, I totally agree with you. Let's deconstruct some things that were going on in that college experience. Somebody arranged it so that you were in proximity to other people your age. Many times a week, you approached somebody and said, would you like to do this with me? Have breakfast, watch this TV show, right? So somebody, somebody had created a container where you could come together safe enough that you could share possibly intimate, vulnerable conversations if you chose to. Mm-hmm. and somebody made invitations over and over and over again. Now, you're no longer 19, so you somebody else isn't doing it for you, but you can notice that that was happening and notice where you're putting that in your life. And it's not shocking if you then put that in your life again, your life's going to change. And what you're saying is so important that it's not about waiting for someone else to make the invitation. It's about- Good luck with that, yeah. Yeah, you taking it upon yourself. Why do you think people hesitate to make invitations? Oh my goodness. I can talk for a long time about this, Robin. (laughs) Well, first of all, I believe that we're in an era, I'll say culture, where people largely don't know the distinction invitation. In my work, an invitation is when somebody knows that somebody else cares if they show up. We're in an age where people conflate announcements and invitations. Interesting. Yes. I'll give you an example. I was approached at a party. It happened to be a brunch by somebody who's a sister of a friend of mine. So this sister was really excited to talk to me, expert in community. And she said, you know, I moved recently to Potrero Hill in San Francisco and I want to make friends. I want to have a community. And I hosted a brunch in my neighborhood, my home, and nobody came. What can I do to build community? And she shared it in this way, like it was kind of ridiculous that, you know, wanted to have brunch with her. And, and she was heroically offering community. <laughs> and of course, I don't know her and I don't know what she was doing. And, and, you know, maybe her home is behind, you know, barbed wire with a bunch of dogs. I don't know how people are coming. So I started with the first question. I said, well, how many people did you invite? And there's a long pause. And then she said, well, I posted on social media. Right. Well, Robin, she invited nobody. Nobody showed up. <laughs> right. And she was genuinely confounded by this. Right. So what I like to say is we live in an era where I know because of conversations like this, where people like to skip the invitation part. Right. And then be confused why they're not connecting. Okay. The other one is I think, I don't think, I know that people think that a a no to an invitation is a demerit. And then if you get too many no's and you're a bad person or you failed, or maybe even worse than that, you should just give up. And that's just totally misunderstanding how community works. 
Invitations are so powerful, Robin, that they work no matter if someone accepts or turns it down. Because when we make an invitation, if I make an invitation to you, Robin, at least two things are going to happen. One is you're going to get evidence. You're going to get a data point that somebody else thinks you belong. In this case, with me in my home over dinner, sitting with my wife, maybe from six o'clock to 10 o'clock. Maybe you can't come because you're taking care of a sick parent or even at risk youth or work is so difficult that you just collapse on a couch on a Friday night. And the last thing you can do is have a charming conversation. Fair enough. You still get the data point. The second thing that happens is you get evidence that you know somebody that can bring people together. And the loneliest era of maybe history, you tell me, Robin, do you think people want to know that they are connected to somebody who can bring people together or not? Absolutely, right? Absolutely. And according to Marissa King's research, she's out of the Yale School of Management, approximately half of people who we're going to reach out to are not going to be that receptive to invitations to connect. 25%, these are very broad numbers, are so introverted that the idea of going somewhere and being charming and talking is just not that appealing. Hmm. Fantastic. You know what you need. You know what you like. Please do that. Another 25%, they get uncomfortable when relationships become too close. So maybe be invited to my home and having those conversations like that triggers some stuff and they need to back up. Fair enough. What that tells us who are making the invitations is you're expecting to get at least half no's. And then you throw in some sick parents there and some at-risk kids and some exhausted job and maybe even housework. And guess what? Your acceptance rate should be below 50%. If you're getting anything above 50%, then something's going screwy with who you're inviting and your numbers. And when we understand that you should be getting half knows or more than half knows. And you understand that that's still building community and bringing connectedness and community into a group of people. Now we can become more liberal and make those invitations. Before I move on from this, Robin, I, I want to show you something else that's counterintuitive so we can distinguish announcements and invitations. Okay, great. Robin, I live in Oakland. Famously in the press, Oakland's having a real rise in crime during the pandemic. The city is having a budget crisis. We're having a record hot summer, which is creating its own problems with fires and smoke. Hey, we're going to have a pizza at my house on Friday night. You should totally come. <laughs> wait, wait. You just laughed out loud. And like I said, you could come to my house for pizza on Friday night. That's well, awful. I'd still come, but I'm brave. Okay. okay. <laughs> so let's change that invitation. That, by the way, wasn't an invitation. That was an announcement. Hey, there's pizza. You should come. Oh, okay. It's not clear to you that I oh, care right, if you come, right? right? Let's and by it. the way, you've gotten many of quote unquote invitations that are sophisticated, right? Just an announcement. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's going to be there. You should come. It'll be great. Right. That's true. That doesn't show that you care if I'm there or not. Right. Hey, Robin, we've known each other for over a year. We haven't seen each other for a year and a half because of COVID. We've known each other for over a year. So I live in Oakland. And during the COVID year, Oakland's had a really rough time and crime has gone up and the city is in crisis because of the budget. And we're also having weather things that are making this difficult place to be. My wife have decided that uh, we want to have friends around us that are connected and are supportive as we get through these, quite frankly, unprecedented time in the region. And one of the ways we do that is we schedule our evenings on Friday nights from six o'clock to 10 o'clock to do no work, to get off our phones and to create relationships with people we want to know better so that we have more friends in the area. We'd love for you to come. I'd love for you to be part of that. Will you join us on Friday? Oh, I think we're going to order pizza. Right. Do you hear the difference? Yeah, totally. One, I'm really clear that I'm doing this because I want to be connected uh-huh. and there's going to be pizza there. The other one is there's pizza there. You should be there. Yeah. Well, you should be there. And by the way, there's pizza. I want you to be there. And the reason I want you to be there is I have an intention. We're yeah. building friends. Yeah. You know what I'm hearing in that is I think that the way of making an invitation where it's clear that it matters to you 
whether the person's there or not Mm -hmm. really involves an element of being willing to be a little vulnerable. Possibly. If vulnerability in this case means I'm sharing that I have a wish that could be denied. Yeah. And that I'm telling this person, you know, that it matters to me, right? That it's not just there's pizza, you should be there. And maybe Mm -hmm. not revealing what's actually just underneath that is that it would really make a difference to that person. Mm -hmm. Right. You did come, right? Yeah. Because I think that there's some of that sort of trying to play it cool, kind of, which might be impeding mm-hmm. people's ability to connect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, an invitation is just a request. If it's anything more than a request, we enter the realm of coercion, <laughs> where there's a sense where there's demerit if you don't come, you, I, you'll be punished, or that you'll be specifically rewarded if you do come. And when we see our invitations as requests that other people know we care if they show up or not. And that we know that it doesn't matter if they say yes or no, they're still powerful. And that we know that most people are going to say no, and that's okay. That's just how the world works. Now we're freed up to start making invitations that aren't getting made. I love that. That's great. That's that's lovely. So let's talk about another one of your concepts that relationships include generosity. Mm -hmm. Well, the reason it's important for me to talk about is as you referenced earlier in the top of this conversation, many people want to start a community and they really have an extractive mindset. I want to get sales. I want to get logons. I want to get views. I want to get followers. I want to get posts. I want, I want, I want, I want. Great. You can want those things. Robin and I know exactly how many people we want to spend more time with if all of their investment to spend time with us is to get something from us. Now, (laughs) Robin, my guess is you have uh, purchased some meals for friends in the past. My guess is you've given some rides to airports in the past. Mm -hmm. And that was totally okay in friendship, which is to say people got stuff from you. You didn't keep those relationships because they were getting stuff from you. You got those relationships because you perceived, and I hope you were right, Robin, that there was mutual concern. In that relationship, there was mutual generosity. That you are around people who aren't constantly doing a return on investment calculation every time you make a request or you find a voicemail from them. Right. So to develop that a little bit further, let's reflect on people who see relationships as an opportunity to get stuff. We call that transactional. I'm going to dance for you. I'm going to push out media for you. I'm going to give you access to status, i.e. I'll invite you to an inner ring and you're going to get that. And I'm going to get whatever I'm going to get. That's transactional. I mean, I can think generally about this. So those would be transactional relationships. The relationships that we want to be in are internally motivated where we're growing together. People who seek out and are building extractive and transactional relationships, they think of a relationship as a bank account and they put things in the bank account. And then when they build it up, then they ask for stuff and they deplete the bank account. And those people are constantly worried about, well, what is the balance? And they're worried about whether they've put enough in and they can ask enough. And if they don't get that ROI, then they get mad because they've put their value in the bank account. We know those people. We largely try to avoid them. Am I right about that, Robin? Yeah, but I've got to stop you here because this is really interesting. I don't know if you recall Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, where he literally talks about Mm -hmm. the emotional bank account, right? I can't speak to Stephen Covey's emotional bank account. You know, I can speak to the fact that there are people who are constantly evaluating Mm -hmm. how much value they've perceived they've put in relationships that they could ask. Mm -hmm. And then they come up sometimes with goofy calculations that I've witnessed. Right. Okay. Gotcha. I'm saying that we need to dispel that and we need to think about relationships totally different, quite frankly, revolutionary to most people. And that is we need to think of relationships, friendships as a muscle. And with a muscle, the more we use it, the more we put a load on it, the stronger it gets. 
So the more we asked for the ride to the airport, not because we weren't willing to buy a car, but because there is a need right now, the more people feel close to us than some boundary. I mean, there's obviously a bell curve that has ends each one. Sure. So that's how I talk about it usually. We got to think about it either bank account or a muscle. And I'm encouraging people to think about it as a muscle so they can build short relationships. We can get a little bit more complicated. The reason why the former fails is those are externally motivated relationships. I want to get stuff external from me that you have or can give me, and I'm going to be related to that. The latter is internally motivated. I want to express my generosity. I want to express my friendship. I want to make other people are healthy, and I'll do what it takes. And that includes sharing a meal and driving to the airport, or quite frankly, sitting with you in a hospital in an ICU room. And for those of us who have been with friends during really, really tragic times that might have been an ICU room, we understand what an honor it is to be invited into that room and to stand with a family and hold that space in maybe the worst hours of their lives. They are not depleting the bank account when they ask us to come to that ICU room. They are building the muscle of the relationship because they're giving us invitation to express the friend, to be the friend we want to be. And when we can recognize that we are surrounded by people internally motivated, almost desperate to share the friend they want to be, everything changes. You know, and that's so incredible because I have to think how many people are not asking because they don't want to be a burden or they don't want to impose or they- Oodles and oodles, Robin. Right? And I mean, so this is such a powerful idea that you're sharing. Yeah. Let's spread it widely because it's such a disaster out there. So it's like you want better friendships, ask more from your friends. (laughs) Really? That's actually a big deal. I like to share a story. My son was born a few years ago and it just so happened my wife went to labor a week early. And because she went to work in labor week early, I was actually in New York while she was in Oakland when she went to labor. And so it was a very stressful time for me to get back. And I landed and got to the hospital and all the preparations of the house that we expected to happen over a week didn't happen. And she stayed a couple nights in the hospital, went from the hospital home, but this house was not yet ready for a new mom and a new child. And as you can imagine, Robin, having flown in from New York and then watched my son being born, I was tired. And I noticed that I was tired and I noticed that I was overwhelmed. And mature enough now, Robin, that I know that when I have that feeling, that what I need to do is ask for help. So I got my phone out and I immediately reached out to a few friends and I said, I need help. I believe that's how it started. I need help. And sure enough, my friend Arjan responded and said, I'll be right over. And he didn't know I was reaching out an hour earlier. And so within minutes, he was in my home and I said, okay, Arjan, here's this long list of things we need to do for my son, my new son to come up in this, in this house and I can barely stand up. Let's start at the top. And he and I knocked out that list within the next few hours. The reason I'm telling you this story, Robin, is as a new father, I became aware that if I didn't have that wisdom, that when I had that feeling, I need to ask for help. And if I hadn't had the humility to allow my friend extemporaneously to work on my house for several hours as a surprise call, that I wouldn't have gotten it. And my story of my son coming home and being a new father would be one of exasperation and how tough it is. And, oh, gosh, you know, when you're a new father, there's so much to do and it's so exhausting and you can't get it done. Okay. Instead, because I understood that and I acted consistent with that, my story is my son coming into my life was about community and friendship. It's about coming together and and preparing. It's about welcoming somebody into a community who came together to make sure he would join us in a safe and healthy way. And that's the difference of community. (laughs) That's such a great, (laughs) 
All right. Let me just make sure because I could end on that, frankly. That was fantastic. The great thing about editing is you get to toss everything around, right? Right, exactly. Robin, I know that you and I were mission-driven, that the writing and the talking and the podcasting and the speaking, uh, it's not because we need a bigger platform. It's not because we need to prove to people that we're more important than we used to be. Uh, We do it because we're out to change the damn world. Yep. And it's because we see it's broken and people are in pain. And while we're here, if we can say or do something that moves the needle away from that pain, then that's a worthwhile investment. And I meet authors that I know are doing the work because they frankly just want to be a bigger name. And that usually means more sales. Usually that's what that means. And you and I have talked about how you and I agree the number of books you sell does not tell us how important your work is, right? I mean, I know there are celebrities out there that could write a book about 10 ways to cook an egg and they'd sell over a million copies. My book has not sold a million copies. And I know that without exaggeration, some of the most powerful companies in the world uh, build programs based on my work. And I hope that's helping people to bring them together in new ways. So we have disconnected how big we are with certain numbers and how important our work is. And then I meet authors who see this game as a competition. And at one point, I began writing my follow-up book to Art of Community. It's called Building Brand Communities with my co-author, Carrie Melissa Jones. And I want to work with her because I talk about the fundamentals and millennia-old wisdom about bringing people together that we can translate and apply to our era. And she was much more versed in what large organizations, often commercial, are doing and largely failing at to bring people together. And we want to write the book that calls out what's failing so they can stop doing that. But if you don't know how they're failing, it's hard to write that book. And so we came together. And quite frankly, I think it was a perfect marriage of different areas of understanding to come together to say something new. But in the beginning, she was a little bit afraid. Well, now that we're going to be working together and there's only so many conferences and there's only so many clients, and there's only so many entering. Are we in competition? And we got to have the conversation, which I want to reference here, which is, look, we're out to change the world. And even if we look at the numbers, there's 500 Fortune 500 companies and there's 400 top 400 foundations and there's 100 top 100, whatever, right? Let's not worry about if you and me got to split them up. And second of all, if what we're really trying to do is share something that'll shift this culture to be more healthy, more safe, and more fair, then the more of us that are doing it and the more of us that are doing it well is better. And quite frankly, Robin, if you tomorrow decide you want to be super community expert, and God bless you if you do, Robin. (laughs) And all of a sudden, people are listening to you because your work is more relevant and more powerful than what I've written and shared. That's better for the world. And it's really incumbent on me to then find out how my work needs to mature to be relevant and powerful and effective. And if you get bigger numbers because you're telling people what they want to hear, not what they need to hear, and I continue saying what I think they need to hear, but nobody wants to hear it, and your number's bigger than me, then I get to make that choice. And I don't need to be threatened by you because you'll tell everybody at conferences, you're great, you're doing the right thing. What the world needs is more people of us doing this. And that's how the world got so great today. High five to everybody, we win. (laughs) And you and I, Robin, know people, we have names in our head right now where they're building their entire career saying that. Yep. And you and I look at the world and say, are you freaking kidding me? Like, this is a horror show. And we don't want more of it. And whatever's taking us here, let's turn this thing around. No high fives. Look, we did it. We're smart. Good on us. Anyway, thanks for listening. Yeah, no, that is so important. And, you know, it it really speaks directly to something that I teach consistently across several different platforms, which is that, you know, book sales is one metric. It's the metric that publishing houses like to look at and and focus on because it keeps the doors open. And Mm -hmm. we all understand the, the need for that. 
And at the same time, though, in terms of like, I think that we should be measuring the success of a book on impact. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you get your book into the hands of a few key people who have mm-hmm. the ability to influence thousands of people, <laughs> you know, even or in the case of, of this era, literally billions, right? Or billions of people. Yeah. I mean, then you could literally change the world yeah. with very few book sales if you're putting the yeah. book in the hands of the right people right. who can actually use your ideas to create some real change and some real movement. Mm-hmm. And so I think that this is a perfect example of talking about how do we actually measure an author's success? Because, you know, do you, if your whole legacy is about your sales numbers, mm-hmm. okay, but I, you know, the authors I meet are really in it for these bigger ideas and, and you know, mm-hmm. really changing the world for, so it's better for everyone. But I love your opinion on this, Robin. As you know, when we become authors that get some attention and we have a following, we get invited to new rooms. Literally, we're invited into new rooms. And my take on it is there's a winnowing that people who know, I call it dancing, that people know they're just dancing at the front of the room. They largely begin to recognize who's actually showing up with purpose. And when I'm there, there's a feeling of gravitas with people who actually have something to say to heal this era, at least the best we can. And then who's there to dance better? And then to brag about how they're selling more dance tickets. Right. (laughs) uh, Will you share your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that that's true. And I think it's pretty easy to spot, don't you think? I think so. And I often surprised about what looks obvious to me and is a mystery to other people. I mean, I've been told bluntly by people in my field that there are people who have books out around community who are scared of me. Ah. And I have literally never spoken to some of those people. And I don't know if that's true, but I've been told and, and I wonder why. And I, what they tell me is they're scared because they know that my work is of substance and that it's really about bringing people together and not about telling any, any given executive I can solve your problems with a couple tools and a, and a spreadsheet and a checklist. And I don't go into rooms and tell uh, very often executives, that's right, you're doing a fantastic job. You have what this era needs. And all we need to do is amplify what you're doing. I largely never say that. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly. not how we became the loneliest era of American history with 50% of people in burnout and half of American workers wanting to leave. That's not how we got here because you're awesome. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And moving your entire office to full-time Zoom is not going to make it better. (laughs) Yeah. Even though it saves on the rent. Yeah. I do think that there's, you know, sometimes or a lot of times, right. The, the solution that seems the simplest seems like the fastest path to the result is often not the best solution. I mean, I can't even, Mm -hmm. I've I've literally turned away thousands of people who come to me wanting to write a book because out of my genuine concern, I said, you're not ready Mm. to write a book and you need to go grow your business, Mm. get a client base, you know, get some on the ground Mm. experience, cover your monthly bills. Mm -hmm. And I imagine some of those people, unfortunately, went to a different book coach and wrote a book. (laughs) I want to respond to that, Robin. You and I both know if you sit in front of a word processor and you peck long enough, you will have 40,000 words. Right. There you go. <laughs> exactly. Uh, whether anybody should use their waking time to read them or if they use them 
it will help them grow in any way is like, is the real question. Exactly. Exactly. And I think that if we're going to take on the task of authorship, because it's Mm -hmm. true, anyone with a, with the ability to put sentences together, you know, even not necessarily. Right. Exactly. Anyone can write a book. Right. But should you, you know, and at what point, you know, what is the purpose of the book? Is the purpose of the book to stand at the front of the room and say, look at me, I'm an mm-hmm. author? Or is the purpose of the book to be part of a bigger mission, part of a bigger mm-hmm. idea that you're wanting to promote in the world? Mm-hmm. I want to ask you a question about authorship, just because I want your take on this. Yeah. Uh, when I was a new author, my book got enough traction. I was getting invited to these rooms, you know, we, we referenced, but I was new there and like, didn't that, you know, the norms, whatever. And I showed up in the lobby, a very famous company you've heard of that invited me to have this lunch there. And there was another author there who showed up and I'd never heard of him. And I didn't know what he writes about or talks about, or I don't know anything about him. And within minutes of meeting me, he handed out a copy of the self-published book to literally everyone standing in that lobby within an arm's reach. Okay. I mean, it's less than 10, but I literally didn't know him. I didn't ask for a book. Even if I did ask for a book, I literally didn't know the subject. And I was kind of startled by that because I was thinking of the the wisdom a mentor of me told me says, if you show people that your work is worth nothing, they will agree with you. Absolutely. And if someone's not willing to literally use their thumb to hit a button to buy my book for $14, and they probably don't want to read it. If you don't have $14 and you ask me for a book and you want it, I will give it to you. If that's the problem, you don't have $14 and a a phone with a button on it. And I was so startled. Like, what is going on? That you're literally handing a book I didn't ask for in a lobby of all places. Like, where am I going to put it? And anyway, so if you could share with me your take on it, help me kind of understand where that's when and where that's a good idea. It's never a good idea. Okay. And for many reasons. Well, the, the most obvious one is it devalues your book. Mm-hmm. But I think the bigger problem with it is it really undermines what actually is going on in an author and a reader, mm. which is the opportunity to create intimacy mm. and handing someone your book that you didn't ask for your book in a lobby mm. is the equivalent of sticking your tongue down someone's throat instead of mm. shaking their hand when you're introduced. Okay. And so that's why you were startled. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Right, because it's like it's more like an attack mm-hmm. than an invitation, and it portrays desperation, low value, and really a form of disrespect. Right, like hmm. I don't care if you want my book or not; you're going to have my book. And really, something that is missed by authors who who do that, who I'm sure are just you know trying to promote their book, mm-hmm. but what they're missing is the real opportunity in having a book is when someone chooses to read your book because it's interesting to them. And maybe they see something, some possibility for themselves if they read it. And then you literally, most likely literally, get six hours of their uninterrupted, undivided attention in bed, frankly, (laughs) because that's probably where they are when they're reading it. And you have this huge opportunity to actually create a form of a relationship with your reader. If you can demonstrate in the book that you see them, that you understand what they're dealing with, and that you have some suggestions that just might apply to their situation and help them out. 
And this is why I think when people read books and then they meet an author who wrote a book that they really got value from, they're so excited, right, to actually have that in-person connection because they already feel connected to the author. And so I even tell people, don't go to a conference and put your books on a table and say, take with a sign that says, take one, because that's almost as bad. You're not assaulting the person, but you're definitely devaluing the book. And you really want to think about like, are they interested enough to give you 20 bucks for the book? Then that's actually a good starting point because they're making an investment. You've invested your time, everything that you brought to create that book and then buying the book or asking for the book even is their way of demonstrating, I value this and I would like to partake of this. No one should get a book without that part of the conversation. Well, you've touched on something that's helpful to me. A number of people have approached me and they're fans of my work and they feel more connected to me than I obviously feel connected to them because I've never met them before. And I can respect that. And of course I do the work to make a difference and I'm happy that people like it. It never occurred to me they spent six hours with me maybe in bed. Yeah. <laughs> I'm curious, do you have, when we meet people who are big fans of our work, and it's touched, and I obviously am big fans of other artists, so I have some empathy with that. As you know, when we're at a conference and there are hundreds of people there, and maybe we've traveled across time zones and might have spent 12, day, 12 hours in airport and universe, it's really tough to be present and, and um, as personal as we want to be, right? And I know for me, I want to be connected. I want to be kind. And it sometimes just becomes a volume game. But do you have thoughts about principles we can keep in mind or live by when we just notice there's more people who want to connect with us than we have the bandwidth for at that moment. Well, that's a great problem to have. <laughs> Don't let me oversell it. I am not an international you know, superstar, but you know, this has happened. I, that hasn't happened to me a whole lot, but I think that, I think that first, you know, doing the best that you can to, to receive the, the people that you can. But I also think it kind of depends on the context. Like if it's going to be a multiple day conference, for example, you know, I think it's totally fine to also set that boundary and say, you know, I just got off an airplane. I'm exhausted. I really hope that we'll have a chance to connect more over the next few days. But right now, what I need to do is this, you know, and I think that people are, you know, just I think it's probably like anything, any other conversation where there's mutual concern, where you're building that that kind of relationship, even if it is a brief relationship, you know, that you, even if you never see them again. But I think it's about understanding what your needs are and communicating them in a way that's also acknowledging this person's interest in you. Well, I know there are people who do it really well, and I don't think I do it terribly, but I think I have a lot to grow. I remember I flew to an event in Wisconsin. It was a healthcare event. And uh, my agent got feedback that like the presentation was great, but you know Charles surely could work on his like personability or something. And so she asked me like, what was going on? And then she found out, well, you know, I'd gotten there. Nobody, it was a big event. Nobody had met me at the front door to show me which room it was. So I was wandering around looking for it. When I found the room, there was a session going on. It was locked. And they didn't tell me when they were going to unlock it. And then when they did unlock it, which was an unannounced time, I had to get in there and then find the person to do the tech, to get the tech, to do the tech check, whatever. And guess what? Somebody tried to talk to me and thought I was not very personable. <laughs> and I'm the community guy, right? Right, right, of course. Right? And I'm here to talk about community. And, you know, granted, that was pretty acute because I've been literally locked out of the room and, right. no, you, know, you know, fair enough. 
But I mean, it kind of reflects the fact that to that person, they're meeting the community guy who's all about connection and yeah. like he's not reconnected. And, and like, how can I ever meet? Well, you know, I think sometimes the, the, the wisdom that's required there is on behalf of the other person. One lesson I'll never forget that I learned, actually, I was doing an acting intensive at the National Theater Conservatory. And there was a member who would just get up and leave the room for no apparent reason and then come back. There was a mixed ages. I was in my late 20s. This person was in his late 20s. And this would go on throughout the intensive. And he seemed very angry and sort of came in and out in terms of his participation level. And the whole time I was kind of judging him, you know, I was thinking, what's with this guy? Like, he's not really into this and he's not really being social. And he keeps walking out of the room when somebody's in the middle of something. And then he disappears for several minutes and then he comes right back. And I found out on the the last day on the farewell party that he had AIDS. And I realized that all of his behavior made perfect sense. And it really taught me a lesson about you'd never know what people are dealing with. And I never, I think I would be grateful to him for the rest of my life because I, anytime I rush to judgment about somebody's behavior, I remember that, that you just never know. And I think that it's also important that people who are approaching somebody who's (laughs) about to speak before a room, keep in mind, you don't know what that person's dealing with in that moment. And just because they didn't extend a big hug to you in that moment, you know, and want to sit down and have coffee with you. Maybe there's other stuff going on. Well, thanks for sharing. It's, I also have had to learn myself that I make judgments about what people should or shouldn't do. And I don't know how much pain they're in mm-hmm. or how much stress they're dealing with. And I'm old enough now that I have enough back pain that just sitting in a chair for three hours and listening to someone at the front of the room is just a ridiculous expectation of me. And so I have to be the one who stands up and goes to the back room and pace to just get muscles moving. I'm sure there are people who think, gee, what's wrong with that guy? And I don't go around explaining. It's super painful to sit <laughs> long enough. So something we can all remember that you yeah. just never know and a little generosity. Mm-hmm. I'd want to ask you also about your thoughts about, this is going to be really general, how other authors should be, can be, helpful to other authors. And here's why I ask. I think you and I, and hopefully all of you we hang, want to hang out with, we want to be generous. Yes. I don't have time to vet the validity, the merit, usefulness, or the maturity of people who approach me who are making something, be that a podcast or got you know a book, which I'm not going to spend six hours vetting just to see, right? And I'm not going to start taking risks with my name to people I know, like you, Rob, I'm not going to introduce to people that, you know, within 10 minutes you realize don't have a clue in anything, but you check them out. And so I'm in this quandary. I only have so much bandwidth and I want to be as generous to other people as other people have been to me, period. Yeah. And yet there's an enormous time commitment if I'm to step into that with say quality. Could you just speak to thoughts that you've gained, you know, with a lot more perspective with authors than I have? So you mean like if somebody comes to you for an endorsement for your book, for their book? Endorsement, but also introductions and I guess encouragement to be parts of what I call inner rings. You know, the inner rings go on forever. You know, groups of people you have to be invited to or applied to, whatever. And I don't want to be the person who encourages someone to go somewhere. And they're maybe they're just ten years too early. Right. Maybe they'll be they'll be great in ten years. Yeah. And so, with the way that shows up is there's you know they perceive a reticence to be very helpful, and it's really about bandwidth, right? Mm-hmm. 
I'm going to pile on, Robin. I want to give you a lot to respond to because I have all kinds of questions. I know that I invited you to interview you, but this is fun. So keep You have things to say? (laughs) Who who, who said I got the most to say on this? Plus, you get to edit and you can make you sound fantastic and make me sound like whatever whatever you want because I'm not editing it. (laughs) The other thing I want you to speak to is that for those of us who do deep work, and I know that you do very, very deep work. Well, let me say this. You want to avoid everything that's superficial, (laughs) right? Who has time for that? (laughs) There's this reality that it just eats up our calendar. Yeah. And for you and me who do deep work, that quick 15-minute conversation kills Hmm. aspirationally only an hour of productivity, aspirationally, and probably a whole afternoon of, of concentration, right? And people want to catch up or they just want to check in or whatever, and they don't understand the cost of that. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you, a now client contacted me from Google. They wanted me to come to Google. I live in Oakland and Google's in, they wanted me to come to Google and have lunch down there. And I actually said no, because I didn't know how important the meeting was. And I would lose effectively an entire day of writing to go to lunch to see if it was like anything worth, right, right. And I don't know how many people would say that's ridiculous, but to a writer, like that's all day of writing to find out if I needed to get, you know. So I'm in this right now because I'm writing a book. How do not come across as a person who thinks I'm too cool for school because I won't find that five, 15 minutes for those a week and you got to grab it. And also being someone who wants to be available and engaged and active and you know approachable. So if you could speak to that, that would be really helpful. I think this is tough because I think that there's a natural thing that happens is as you up level your own life, as you mm-hmm. grow as a person, as and especially professionally, You're going to attract more people. You're going to have more people wanting your time. And I think that it's just a occupational hazard in a way where you have to start saying no more. Mm -hmm. And it's never fun really to Mm -hmm. say, often rarely fun to say no. Sometimes it's fun, but (laughs) most often it's not fun to have to say no or to have to not make yourself available. And I think that, but on the other hand, it's really important to protect your time, mm-hmm. uh, especially when you're doing world-changing work. I mean, you mm-hmm. can't be there for every little thing. I think that it's just about being respectful but clear in your communication. And, you know, like maybe saying, is it absolutely essential that I'm at that lunch? <laughs> because unless you absolutely have, positively have to have me there, I need to do this other thing. Or maybe it's just like, there's no way I can do it. But I think it's just about being really clear and protective of your time. I'm glad you said that. I remember I asked somebody who's in the PR communications world, I was speaking to them and they said, they talked, they referenced an author that I really admire and said, oh, that person has put up this big smoke screen to see more important than they are. Like they're just too cool to talk to anybody. And I don't know if that's true, but I thought as that was coming out of his mouth, like, you know, this legitimately is a problem for me. And I don't know who else is talking about me saying, oh, Charles is just too cool. You know, he doesn't have time for anybody. He's like, no, I'm actually doing something, right? And yeah. uh, that's why I wanted your thoughts on that. that I don't well, I, you know, I think- wake up and I'm all of a sudden one of those people that's like, just seems like I'm just too cool to talk to anybody. Yeah, well, I think it depends on, I think that's why I think it does matter a little bit how you say no, right? Because just like, you know, you could, like saying, no, you're not important enough is not... <laughs> Well, what I say is, if you were more important, I would consider it. If you were more important. <laughs> right. But I, but I think, right, to say, well, you know, here's what's going. I'm in the middle of this. Yeah. And so I've really consciously limited yeah. my calls to only, you know, mm-hmm. 
certain time frame with certain people who are closely related to the project I'm working with or whatever. But I think that, you know, if you just sort of be willing to be a little bit transparent with people and they, you know, just give them a bit so that they know more mm-hmm. than they need to know. But I think that that helps to make it clear. It's not that you, they just, you don't think they're important enough. Okay. Even if I mean, sometimes it just isn't appropriate. I mean, actually somebody reached out to me on Facebook and wanted to do a call and I'm just not the right person to help mm-hmm. this. And I just right. said, look, this, what I really think I would recommend is that you use that time that you would have spent on the phone with me talking to an attorney mm. <laughs> because I am not the person right. that you need for this. And mm. that was just that. But I answered. Yeah. As you were speaking, what I realized is what I could do more of is instead of saying in whatever way is as polite as I know how to make, look, I don't have the bandwidth to have this conversation is I can more steer them to colleagues I respect who are in community and say, if you want to talk to somebody who I really admire on the subject and please reach out to them, they may have more bandwidth. The other thing I'll add, Charles, is I don't know if you have this, but if you maybe get, think about getting an assistant, if you don't have an assistant. Oh, I do, but it doesn't matter how great my assistant is. You know, there's only so many waking minutes, right? No, I get it. I get it. But I mean, that has made a huge difference because that's enabled me to have her be the first line of defense, if you will, that she can help filter and at least kind of give me the summary, the top level summary of. Oh, yes. I mean, that's going on. At the end of the day, there's that gray area and and also people that I want to be helpful and responsive to. Mm -hmm. But the concern isn't that I'm not talking to them per se, right? Because you only have, it's just that am I totally accidentally creating this persona that I heard somebody describe another author. Right. And, you know, while I'm here, I'm wondering, maybe that's like totally legit. And that person's not pretending, you know, whatsoever. And I think like at some point you've got to just give up being too worried about what other people think, Mm -hmm. because there is just no way to do everything so that nobody's going to say that Charles is just a snob or that Mm -hmm. Charles can't make time for me because he's too important. That's not about you. Like I had one business coach who very wisely said, mm. other people's opinion of you is none of your business. Well, <laughs> I, I think there's certainly times when that is true. And then there's a bell curve. But I think like to the point where God, we've got to understand that we can't control, like, no matter what we do, yeah. piss some people off. And no matter- Yeah, well, that's true. Yeah. They're make up stories about why we did what we did or why we didn't right. do what we didn't do. Oh. And we just- I- can't really put a lot of energy into worrying about I'd like to invoke the words of a great American sage named Taylor Swift. Ah. People throw rocks at things that shine. Yes. And I have found that to be true. And not just in the current chapter of my life, but in the past chapters, that as soon as I got some attention, all of a sudden there are people who want to throw rocks. And before I had that success, I didn't care. That's absolutely the case, Robin. Yeah. And it's big now, you know, with the cancel culture and stuff we have going on now, it's a real thing. But I think it's about just staying true to yourself and just keep moving. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Well, thank you for having me on this. Oh, thank you for this opportunity to, to talk about my work and to learn from you. Yes. And I thank you so much for having this conversation with me. I think that our listeners are going to get a lot of different and unexpected things out of it. <laughs> I hope so anyway. Great. All right, Charles. Thank you again for your time. Okay. We'll talk soon. You know where I am. I love hearing from you. Yes, me as well. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in to another amazing episode of The Author's Corner. You're one step closer to writing the world-changing book you've dreamed about for years. 
To access today's show notes and other helpful resources, simply visit our website at theauthorscorner.com. A positive review would be appreciated. Until next time. 